We're starting the fifth series of Bring Back V10s by putting something right. On looking back over our first four series, we realised we were yet to talk about anything from 1998. There's no particular reason for that. I can assure you there's no bitterness towards that season just because Jacques Villeneuve's title defence didn't go very well. It was just a quirk, really, of the haphazard way we plan our episodes. So as appealing as it was to open our 1998 account with that year's Belgian Grand Prix, which we will definitely do at some point in the future, we went for another race from that year that was also wet and featured plenty of drama, the British Grand Prix. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me to kick off Series 5 with the race that Michael Schumacher somehow managed to win in the pit lane are Ed Straw and Gary Anderson. Ed, welcome back for another series. I'm sure the listeners will hear plenty from you over the next 12 episodes. You know the drill with the opening question. So when you think back to the 1998 British Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, well, I was at Silverstone that weekend as a fan. That was a few years before I started my journalistic career. I was watching in the Beckett's grandstand as well as being somewhat damp. I remember at the time being completely baffled and outraged by Michael Schumacher and Ferrari winning the race in the pits while serving the infamous penalty, which at the time I thought was completely wrong. But as time has passed and I've understood a little more of what actually happened, it's fair to say my position has has changed somewhat for reasons I think we'll we'll get on to later I imagine but you, you were at Silverstone weren't you guys yeah I was there I was uh, I was sat at club uh, also also pretty wet um, but actually delighted to see a wet F1 race I'd been to Silverstone a few times by then it's great to see the cars running in the dry but there's something about F1 cars running in the rain uh, things like the rooster tails the spray hanging in the air all that sort of thing as an enthusiastic teenager, I wanted to see all of that. And it was well worth the price of uh, getting soaking wet. And I think I think I might have even left the trainers I was wearing that day. I think I left them in a bin on the campsite. It wasn't worth taking them back after a weekend of traipsing around Silverstone. Gary, good to have you with us again. Would I be right in guessing that your overriding memory from being on the pit wall this weekend was the fact that Jordan kick-started its 1998 season uh, at Silverstone? Yeah, yeah, I think it was really. I mean, it's always difficult to say because um, the car wasn't wasn't slow. Um, the problem was whenever the tyres got used, it became a bit more difficult for the drivers to get the best out of it. But you also only got points to sixth place then. So, you know... You could be having a really, really good, uh, good season and finishing seventh all weekend or every weekend, and and really, you know, n- no points for it. So, I think just that one point at Silverstone gave everybody that little lift of momentum. Um, I was long past being a a useful teenager, I suppose, at that point in time at Silverstone. But but even still, you know, momentum and motivation is very important all the way through the company, and and that's the first step getting that one point. Especially at the track that was, of course, across the road from the Jordan factory. The start of a new series means it's time to start getting your questions in for the end of our series, where you can ask us anything about F1 in the V10 era from 1989 to 2005. As always, you can submit a question by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, email BringBackV10s at the-race.com, or leave us a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it, and submit a question there. Thank you to everyone who left us reviews at the end of the last series, and those of you who have caught up over the months in between series four and five. So let's quickly do some shout-outs. Thank you to MJW6150, Funky Kitten 100, Super Ted 1396, and possibly the catchiest review name we've ever had, GVGHHIGFFF, 
which I assume either stands for something or a cat walked across your keyboard as you went to put your name in. You can also get early access to ad-free versions of new episodes and bonus content by joining the Race Members Club. So if you're listening to this earlier than the first Thursday in January, thank you for your support. We hope you enjoyed the bonus uncut interviews we released after the last series and the extra questions we answered from our members. But that's enough plugging. Let's kick off by setting the scene heading into the 1998 British Grand Prix. It was the halfway stage of the season and Mika Hakkinen was leading the championship by six points from Michael Schumacher, who had just won back-to-back races in Canada and France. Hakkinen, of course, was playing it cool, saying at the traditional Silverstone test in the run-up to the Grand Prix, I don't feel under any increased pressure. I did not get carried away when everyone was saying we were so far ahead of the rest and I'm not getting myself bothered now they think we are going to be caught. Schumacher didn't get drawn into any fighting talk at this stage, saying he wanted to see how competitive Ferrari was at Silverstone before making any declarations about how the rest of the season might play out. One man who, surprise, surprise, wasn't short of an opinion on this was F1's resident renter gob Jack Villeneuve. At the Silverstone test, the reigning world champion was asked for his thoughts on the title battle, and he said he felt McLaren had the better package but he accused them of somehow managing to screw it up. So Ed, by the summer, were McLaren making harder work of this championship battle than they should have been with what, of course, was Adrian Newey's first car for the team? Yeah, well, given they had a 100% pole position hit rate up to that point and I think six out of eight front row lockouts, they'd have hoped to translate that into a a slightly more commanding position. The car was clearly very quick. Reliability wasn't perfect. Hakkinen had a couple of gearbox failures and he could have made a better fist of the French Grand Prix as well because he had a bad start and a spin during the race. Although, had that race not been restarted because Jos Verstappen stalled, then that might well have been uh, different because he'd led at the original start. But Ferrari was coming on strong. They weren't resting on their laurels. Well, they didn't have any laurels to rest on. They weren't sitting back doing nothing. Goodyear as well had really started to rise to the challenge uh, posed by Bridgestone after quite a few years of having it all their own way. So there were races like Argentina where that shifted the balance a bit, partly with uh, Goodyear's work. So, yeah, McLaren dropped points, but... I think to say they were screwing it up is overstating it because they did have the advantage in in the championship heading into Silverstone, but they weren't an unstoppable juggernaut at this stage, even though they certainly had the the best car, the best interpretation of the new narrow track regs and yeah, should have probably had a slightly higher hit rate rather than letting Schumacher and Ferrari pick off a few wins here and there. Ferrari's commitment to Schumacher as its number one driver put the spotlight onto McLaren where there were no team orders in place. David Coulthard was third in the championship, 20 points behind Hakkinen back when you got 10 for a win. Hakkinen was asked about getting Coulthard's support and he said it would be unreasonable to expect DC to play a number two role and he felt it was still a three-way championship fight. McLaren boss Ron Dennis accepted that by not committing to one driver, McLaren could end up missing out on the championship, but he said that was the right way to run a team. Gary, you've got experience of, of running teams and being one of the senior people in Grand Prix teams around this time. Where did you stand on all this? Did you agree that a team was doing it the right way by letting both drivers have a crack at it? Or if you're fighting against effectively a one-car team like Ferrari, do you need to be willing to play them at their own game? Well, obviously playing them at their own game would be would be the way to do it. But I think, you know, you need to let the season unfold first. Um, and I believe the right thing to do is sort of, at least for the first half of the season, let the two drivers have battle out. As long as they respect each other, 
and as long as on the day the quickest guy does the winning, then you know you you haven't done too badly a bit with it, to be honest. Then after the second after the middle of the season, you can sort of decide which route you want to take. If there's a big enough points advantage for one driver, then then the, the other driver needs to start to back him up a little bit. But as you say, I, you know, a one car team that's what Ferrari have done for many many years, uh, had done for many many years. And that's that's their philosophy. So, again, to beat them is difficult if you don't join them. But it is also an achievement if you can beat them by by doing it the right way. So, uh, difficult decision to make. Never been really at the front end there running, um, you know, with two drivers or potentially winning a championship. But all the way down through the championship, you have the same battles. Might not be for the win, for the overall uh, championship win, but there's always battles going on somewhere. And I've always felt that two drivers can contribute more than just one. We'll stick with the Ferrari theme for a moment. As ahead of the British Grand Prix, honorary Fiat president Gianni Agnelli said Schumacher was going to stay at Ferrari beyond his current contract, which ran to the end of 1999. Sure enough, just after Silverstone, it was announced that Schumacher had signed an extension to keep him at the team until the end of 2002. And interestingly, unlike his original contract, it didn't contain any performance clauses as Schumacher felt they were no longer needed because it was a matter of time before Ferrari started winning championships. Speaking about the new deal, he added, there's no point in changing a winning team. The choice I made when I came to Ferrari was for my personal satisfaction and the development of my career. With the time that has passed, I have not regretted it. In the last few races, we have shattered the McLaren Mercedes domination. It is something which seemed impossible at the beginning of the year, Everything is going in the right direction and I am fully satisfied and optimistic. Ferrari has done a lot for me and I feel happy in this environment. Schumacher hinted that he'd received proposals that offered as much or more money than Ferrari, which were believed to be from McLaren. And Mercedes motorsport boss Norbert Haug confirmed that there were some talks, but Haug said it was clear early on that a deal wasn't going to be possible. So Ed... If we go back to this stage in 1998, do you think it was already becoming obvious that the Ferrari and Schumacher combination was eventually going to achieve what they'd set out to do together when he moved there in 1996? Or do we look back at those early years and those championship failures and are we just blinded by what came in the years that followed? Yeah, it's always very easy to look back at what did happen with hindsight and say it was all preordained and certain. There were a few signs of impatience already in Italy with the, the Schumacher Ferrari project uh, at this stage. And obviously they've been a little bit frustrated at times, but at the same time, given where Ferrari was coming from, Schumacher had fought for the championship in 97. He was fighting for it in 98. So the trajectory was very positive. I don't think there was any reason for Schumacher not to expect that success to follow, even if it was perhaps taking a little bit longer than he, he maybe expected. So yeah, I don't think many objective observers would have been, saying it, it was going to fail. But I think to say that at this stage it was guaranteed we were going to see what happened did happen, because at this stage it was just winning a championship, wasn't it? So I don't think you'd necessarily have bet the farm on them having that amazing run of six constructors and five drivers' championship wins. And, of course, Schumacher would have won in 99 as well, most likely, had he not broken his, his leg at Silverstone. So it was going in the right direction, but it was proving perhaps a little bit harder than I think maybe even Schumacher thought it, it was going to be. So some patience was required. Eddie Irvine's future in the second Ferrari seat was also the subject of much discussion. Ferrari and Schumacher wanted Irvine to stay on, but he was looking around at his options, which was thought to be a negotiating tactic. 
with Ferrari. Agnelli commented on Irvine's situation as well, saying, I think he could be an excellent number one and we are lucky that he accepts being number two for us. While team boss John Todd said, there is no reason to change drivers. We want stability. Despite sitting fourth in the championship at this stage, Irvine explained his thinking for looking around, saying, it's a matter of deciding, is this the best car available to me or is there a car nearly as good with a lot better opportunity that would give me more power and confidence? It's not good for your psyche if you say something and it's ignored because Michael is all powerful. When Michael gets all the new bits on the car and I get whatever's left, it can get a bit demotivating. In Monaco, I finished on the podium, but it didn't matter because the team was disappointed Michael didn't win. I've got to sit down and really think what direction I want to go. So Ed, by the end of the month, Irvine had signed a one-year extension for 1999. Looking across his time alongside Schumacher, how do you think the job he did compared with Schumacher's other teammates? Yeah, fortunately, I put a bit of thought into this earlier this year when I did a piece for the Race Members Club ranking Schumacher's F1 teammates as uh, one of our Race Members Club members requested it. I put Irvine third in the list behind Nico Rosberg, top, easy choice, and then Rubens Barrichello, who was obviously Irvine's successor at Ferrari. Irvine fitted in really well really knew his place and he was happy to be the number two. If you look at it, he scored about 58% of the points Schumacher did in that period, which considering he was emphatically number two, plus if you look at 96, you know, his, his car was so poor in terms of reliability, I think I think it's pretty good. And he had that run at the title in 99 after Schumacher's injury. There were certainly better drivers out there, but he was a very good one. And for this number one, number two model, Irvine was a great professional fit and I think what he did that was remarkable was he managed to accept this number two role while still delivering at a good level in 98 he was racking up the podiums which is exactly what he was there to do I tend to think that a number two needs to think they can be the number one in order to push themselves on but Irvine seemed to be able to psychologically continue to deliver at a decent level while accepting his status which I think was his value to the team and we should say he made it work very well for himself. He got some great results in Formula One, was paid a lot of money. So I don't think you can really criticise his approach in the slightest. He he just knew that he wasn't Michael Schumacher. And as so many of Schumacher's teammates showed, very, very few people are. Yeah, I think it was interesting how how Eddie had the kind of mental toughness to, to make his peace with being a number two, but not turn it he, he, he didn't end up as this kind of downtrodden number two obviously he eventually left the team because he wanted to be a number one but he you know if you compare him and Barrichello I felt Rubens did a lot more agitating and, and wanting to get equal treatment and that sort of thing where whereas Eddie seemed to be able to accept it but not let it completely derail his own progress but let's use this uh, as a chance to cover something cover something I recently came across when reading Irvine's 1999 book, Life in the Fast Lane, which is a fun look back at his time at Ferrari and the 99 season in particular. While Irvine signed up with Ferrari again in the summer of 98, by the end of the year, he was having talks about leading Honda's upcoming F1 team. We've done a full episode about that project and why the team didn't come off in the end, but we didn't talk about the chance of Irvine going there. In the book, Eddie said, it had always been my intention to go eventually to another team as a number one to join an outfit where I'd have the whole team working for me. I had serious talks with Honda at the end of 1998 and had discussed terms. It was going to be mega. This was something I very much wanted to be a part of. I was convinced this was the way to go. 
In the end, Honda went with BAR, which I thought was the wrong way to proceed. It would have been much better if they'd done their own thing. I said I'd go to Honda if they could get it together, but as it gradually started to unfold, I needed to look around again. So Gary, we know Irvine would end up taking a lead role with what he hoped was a similar project at Jaguar the 2000. You were there. From what you knew of working with Honda and from what you saw of Irvine at Jaguar, how well would they have fit together if the if the Honda-Irvine relationship had come off? Um, I think it would have been pretty difficult because, you know, I think the, the Japanese um, need uh, a positive approach, um, a consistent approach. Um, they need facts and figures. The, they don't respond very well to just, you know, idle chatter. Um, and we saw that with Alonso and Honda at, uh, at McLaren, really. They don't, they don't like that criticism. And I think Eddie, for for lovely guy, Eddie was, was just Eddie. Um, he, he would do it his way. And that's what made him sort of special, to be honest. He was a, an excellent driver, but he was no way a politician. So at the end of the day, I think that would have been a, a bit of an explosion. And it, it really sort of, you know, within any team, you need a lot of strength to handle Eddie um, because he's he is one of those guys that just says it as it is. And as I say, I think I think the Japanese would have, yeah, they'd have rebounded at that and it wouldn't have been a nice place to be at all. So I think he was better going to Jaguar. The opportunity was pretty good. Unfortunately, the Stewart team in 99 and the Jaguar team in 2000 was very, very different. Um, if he had been at, at uh, Stewart in 99, I think he would have thrived. The motivation of the company just disappeared um, with the Ford takeover as such, which was called Jaguar. Um, and with that, you know, the motivation of a lot of things disappeared. So at the end of the day, he, he did the right thing, but he did it a year too late. Talking of Honda, let's move on to what was going on with their engine supply of Jordan, which was officially a Mugen Honda engine, but had gradually become more serious over the years. This was Jordan's first year with the Mugen Honda engine and the team was having a miserable season, having not scored a point by this stage. Damon Hill used the talk of Honda doing its own team to take a shot at the engine operation, saying, until they can prove they can build a competitive modern-day F1 engine, they shouldn't even consider building their own car. It doesn't have a very good spread of power, the engine, and it keeps braking. If they really were to do a team properly, they would throw everything at it. I just wish we could get our hands on that resource. Now, he'll mention this outburst specifically in his book, saying he felt he had to say something to jolt Honda into action, and he followed the approach he'd seen in the past from Ayrton Senna. Damon wrote, Ayrton had got things done at Honda using the power of his personality to effect change by publicly criticising them. I thought, well, you can keep talking behind closed doors, but they won't respond until the cat's out of the bag. Now, Gary, you did plenty of uh, talking behind closed doors with Honda, trying to get them up to speed with this engine. Have you talked in the past about how difficult it was to get through to them, that the engine wasn't as good as they thought it was? Were you on board with Damon's strategy of giving them a bit of a kicking in public to try and get a reaction by this stage? Um, no, not really, because... It was, you know, you could see them sort of close down whenever that happened. When you saw anything coming up in the press or whatever about the position, you could you could actually visibly watch them clam up. And I didn't believe that was the right way to go. We obviously did what we felt publicly that was potentially going to keep them awake, keep them alert of a situation. But the rest of it we did behind closed doors. And uh, I still think to this day it was it was the correct thing to do. 
I went to Japan um, many times at the beginning of 1998 to sort of go through with them the data that we had from the year before with the Peugeot engine and the 98 year with the Honda engine. Now the engine was built um, by Honda engineers. It was serviced by Mugen people, um, but it was built you know, by Honda. So it was a true Honda project. So in going there, I think it was four times. Um, the fourth time was after Imola. And the three times before that, I just couldn't get through the fact that it, if you, we estimated that the, the horsepower deficit between the, the Peugeot and the Honda was something like 45 horsepower, which, uh, you know, was a lot. Um, in those days, it was, you know, a massive, massive amount. And, it, and you couldn't replace it. And the problem is, that it's it's not it's not a visible thing, you know. It's not something that stands out at you. It's not as though you you're trying to drive the car with no front wing on it or no rear wing on it or whatever. It's just a missing part of the jigsaw. And on that fourth attempt there, um, one young engineer went off and got a test sheet from an engine that was running on a dyno, and came back and you know it was in kilowatts and punched his his calculator and came up with a number and said, "Oh, we have problem." And uh, they asked me to stay on for the next day. And I went in the next morning to their office and they had this plan on the wall of what they were going to do. Um, and did that, did that suit what we wanted? You know, the commitment was horrendous, unbelievable. And it even you know, meant changing the firing order. And, you know, that meant for us new exhaust systems and lots and lots of work. So we changed the priorities around a little bit. And the end result was that by the British Grand Prix, we would have an updated engine and we had a little bit of it for the French Grand Prix, but we had the main part for the for the British Grand Prix and obviously made a big difference. I think they found, once they realised, they found something like 30 horsepower. So a major part of the deficit. Um, and then that's when the season started to unfold. But I, I think it was better to do it that way because they saved face. They are very difficult to get to change direction and to get them to publicly change direction is a very, very tough task. Whereas by meeting with them privately, we managed to convince them that what we were saying was not wrong and we're not trying to embarrass you. It's just we all get things wrong at some point in time and you need to change direction to try and achieve it. And as I say, it was, it was everything like, you know, the, the fuel consumption was very high. The fuel consumption was very high because the firing order was wrong and one cylinder was scavenging fuel out of the airbox from the, other, from the next cylinder. It wasn't actually using it, it was just pumping it through the engine. So little things like that made a massive difference. And uh, they got on and, and just did it, basically. Let's talk about the Jordan car as well, as the team's problems weren't all down to the engine. Jordan had a heavily revised car for Silverstone with shorter side pods, new barge boards, and that new exhaust system that Gary mentioned there. And things were looking good in the pre-event test with Ralph Schumacher fastest, although that was believed to be on a low-fuel run with top teams focusing on race running. Hill was happy with the updates, believing it would put Jordan in the mix at the front of the midfield behind McLaren and Ferrari. Eddie Jordan talked about how these updates came about in his book, and he said it was the result of a meeting in the truck after the race in Monaco with you, Gary, and Trevor Foster, where Eddie said he lost his head and was throwing stuff across the room. But he said after that, he gave you the money to redesign the car, believing there was no alternative, and it was agreed that you would miss the races in Canada and France to get that work done. So Gary, assuming the Monaco meeting actually happened, I don't know if you want to revisit that in, a, in any particular detail, but tell us about the process you went through of coming up with the, this raft of updates 
Because as history would tell us, they clearly did the trick. Yeah, um, <clears throat> don't remember too much about that meeting in the truck. That's all I'll say about it. Uh, and Eddie's throwing <laughs> stuff around. You know, we always had communication. We always had liaison between us about the problems we were having. Um, and obviously, you know, when you've got a black and white thing like the engine, the power deficit, then it's something that you, it's, it's just a fact. You know, there's nothing else for it. It's just a fact. As far as the car was concerned, we, I don't think the car was, was, was that bad as an individual package, but what happened was on new tires, it was quite reasonable. Um, I mean, I think our average qualifying position for Ralph was like eighth over the whole season. Uh, obviously, it got better at the beginning, at the end of the year, but it wasn't too bad at the beginning of the year. I think French Grand Prix qualified sixth and maybe Damon seventh or something. So on new tires, the car was quite decent, but it was on old tires, the car didn't work very well. And then we had Monaco, which obviously is a low speed track. And that highlighted the problems. That was the worst qualifying of the season and such. So, but that's what gets the old brain cells ticking, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, after Monaco, I did a bit of head scratching and thinking about stuff. And I, you know, I wanted to look at other things aerodynamically. And basically what we had with the car was, a, was a, an aerodynamic situation where when you put steering lock on the car, the, the central pressure of the car would move rearwards. So when you get more understeer, um, you put more steering lock on, the central pressure moves rearwards and you get more understeer. So it was a catch-22 situation for the driver. Um, and that was the biggest thing, was that although the car could be quick, um, the driver didn't like it. It didn't, didn't respond to his, his natural feelings. So that's the thing I started looking at, really, um, in the wind tunnel and, and trying to assess. We had... We had lengthened the wheelbase, moved the front wheels forward a bit um, for Emma, I think it was, and Damon liked that. Again, that took the, the front wheels away from the side pods a little bit more. When Ralph tried it, he liked it, but he said it, it makes the car better, but it doesn't make it quicker. That's the problem. And he, wanted, he would rather have a car that wasn't as nice, but was faster. So we had to find solutions to these problems. And I started to look at the wind tunnel then at, the, at steering lock characteristics and basically they were not doing what I would have liked them to have done. So we changed a few things, the front wing end plates, the bars, boards, and the leading edge of the side pods, so we could get the aerodynamic characteristics to change. And that really was like a light switch. You know, suddenly the car made sense to the drivers, but unfortunately during that time of the first half of the season, you A, you haven't developed, and B, you've probably gone backwards because you've done things that weren't better for the car just maybe made it a little bit better for what it was at that point in time. So again, it takes a little bit of time to sort of regroup and, re and catch yourself. So when I knew these things were coming and I was pretty confident that um, they would make, it would make the change that we needed, including the engine from Honda, then um, that was when I decided that I didn't, during this period of the first half of the season when I was under a huge amount of pressure, I didn't feel the management at, uh, at Jordan backed me up to um, believe in me, I suppose you might call it. Um, I'm not including Eddie in this because Eddie and I chatted a lot, talked a lot about it, and we both knew the problem. But I knew the pressure on Eddie as well from sponsors. So um, that's when I decided I, it was time to move on. You know, It's the troubled times when you need an arm around your shoulder. Uh, when everything's good, you don't need that arm around your shoulder. And the management there didn't know how to do that. So I was a bit, bit disappointed in them and decided that, I'd get the British Grand Prix done, and then that was Sylvie for me. Uh, I'd had enough.
Yeah, and Eddie Eddie does go on to talk about that in his book and and his his personal disappointment at hearing that you wanted to leave. Says, yeah, certainly, as you say, no bad blood between you and Eddie directly. Jordan weren't the only team to bring updates at this stage of the season, as Williams also had a revised car featuring shorter side pods too. Amusingly, at the pre-event test, Villeneuve said the impact of the changes was difficult to quantify, while Heitzhald Frentzen very specifically declared they were worth three to four tenths of a second per lap. But Villeneuve was happy, saying the changes made the car more stable at the rear, and he hoped Williams might even be able to trouble Ferrari on a good day. So let's get our first mention in this series of Maurice Hamilton's brilliant Williams book, as that tackled the team's fall from grace in 1998. Patrick Head said in that book that one of the things that worked against Williams was that it did a lot of the early testing of the groove tyres with a modified car in 1997. And Patrick said, we were led up the garden path because we tested with Goodyear and the tyres fell apart in a huge way. We designed a car with a rearward weight distribution. Then two or three races into the season, Goodyear suddenly copied Bridgestone and came out with a wide front tyre. That was the change Ed mentioned earlier in Argentina. Uh, Patrick goes on to say, we didn't have much ballast on the car, so we couldn't move our weight distribution forward. Now we had a wide front tyre that didn't suit our weight distribution. Villeneuve ended up getting two podiums that year, and in the same book, he said, I always had the feeling we managed to get more than we should have out of that car. So, Ed, that's a really interesting description from Patrick of what worked against Williams in 1998. And I saw Gary nodding along about the early Goodyear test tyres, but... Is the simpler answer here, perhaps, that Williams had lost Adrian Newey and works Renault engines for 1998? Yeah, I think in the big picture, very much so. What Head's talking about there is the specific problems of the of the car and that the tyres presented. And I think it's fair to say, for example, if you benchmark Williams against Benetton, who used the same engine, the gap between those two was massively reduced across 98 compared to 97. So, yeah, Williams didn't do the didn't do the best job that year. And there were some external factors, but of course they didn't have Adrian Newey, did they? <laughs> but I think in terms of what was achievable that year, probably even if Adrian Newey had been there, the Mechachrome engines they used, yeah, they were the continuation Renaults, but they didn't have the development budget. So there was there was a development and a financial disadvantage there. And I think maybe Williams slightly underestimated the the impact of that in terms of what they could, uh, could achieve that year. But yeah, the loss of Newey w- was huge. So you've got the engine as the first order thing, but given it was the new narrow track car regulations and how well Newey did with the with the McLaren, as you'd expect him to do, they were certainly worse off not having him. So yeah, you've got kind of the the really localized factors of the car, the slightly broader factor impacting that year of the engine, and then the really wide factor of losing Adrian Newey, which its biggest impact was almost long term, even though it was clearly a disadvantage then. So. There's a lot of negatives for Williams uh, in this phase. And yeah, you can kind of shuffle around the priority order, but there was no way Williams was going to be fighting for the championship in, in 98. And the fact I think it had the third fastest car over the season was probably pretty decent. Another F1 engine that was in news around this time was the Arrows engine. That's right. In 1998, Arrows did a Ferrari and had its own in-house engine developed by Brian Hart. The engine had an update coming for the middle of the season, which driver Mika Salo was happy about. Salo said, it's quite a big gain. It's not a big leap in power, but it's very drivable. We ended up going round in circles, but now we've got a better engine. We can look at taking a step forward. It's still not enough, but racing drivers can never have enough power. 
That year's Arrows was the last car fully designed by the legendary John Barnard, who would leave the team during 1998 and then do some consultancy work with Prost. But this was his last role as a fully-fledged technical director in F1. In Barnard's book called The Perfect Car, he said of the Arrows engine, Hart had a good reputation, but his new 10-cylinder engine was really an upgraded Cosworth V8, and it was in its early stages. Now, Gary, Jordan had worked with Brian Hart earlier in the 1990s, but by this end of the decade, was the F1 engine battle just moving away from someone like Brian? You know, it's so difficult for a privateer to build to build engines. Um, you know, Cosworth have done it, did it for many, many years during the the the, the privateer Formula One formula, I think you might call it. Whenever you could go and buy an engine from <clears throat> from Cosworth and a gearbox from Hewland and bolt the whole lot together with a bit of aluminium sheet to make a chassis, and you have a competitive car. But at the end of the day, you know. Unfortunately, the spend is so high. Uh, whenever we moved at the end of 1994, we moved from, from Brian Hart engines to Peugeot engines. Um, the difference in the money spent was enormous. I mean, we were talking Brian Hart's engine engine spend for the year would be something like 5 million. Instantly, Peugeot was 25 million. And even that was too little. You know, the amount of people they had was huge. The facility, the tools, the equipment, the stuff that that money buys you was enormous. So I think for uh, pound for pound or horsepower for pound, I suppose you might call it, without doubt, Brian's engines were exceptional. He was an exceptional person to work with because he understood, having driven a bit himself and having worked with a few teams. And, you know, he was, he was like me. He was... Um, hands-on, you know, uh, head down, nass up, as they call it. But he was hands-on and he was, you know, he, he got on with the job. He understood what was going on. Fantastic person to work with. But by the end of the 90s, you know, the, the bigger companies were starting to come in now with more money again. And it was obviously very, very difficult for him to uh, to to see through the all of that money, how to find that money, because Brian was just a simple engineer. He needed somebody that would put the money in there to allow him to get on with what he did best, which was build good competitive racing engines. And he never really got that opportunity. Talking of big money coming into F1, BAR was in the news around the British Grand Prix because it launched its factory in a little place called Brackley that you might have heard of as it's now the site of the Mercedes F1 team that has enjoyed so much success. BAR also revealed its corporate colours, which were basically light blue and dark blue, although it did come up with a smart livery that it put onto a 1996 Tyrrell for the launch event. Bizarrely, given how obvious it was that Jacques Villeneuve's manager, Craig Pollock, was setting this team up with British-American Tobacco and Reynard for Villeneuve, both sides were claiming that no deal was done at this stage for 1999. However, that was believed to be a formality based on the fact that Villeneuve's Williams contract didn't allow him to sign for someone until someone else until later in the summer. If you've not heard our full episode on BAR's dreadful 1999 season from the last series, you should definitely go and check that out. But we didn't touch on the early weeks and months of the team's formation, so let's do a little bit of that now. In an interview with Autosport magazine, Pollock said, if you asked me two months ago what I could offer a driver, I would have said a load of air. There was nothing really concrete to show. Today, if I take a driver to Brackley, I can show him the start of the infrastructure. There are still some very good reasons for not joining us. We're a brand new team, a huge risk. But if you're arguing with Jacques, you now have an argument, whereas before you didn't. So Gary, by this point, BAR had signed a super tech engine deal and shown off its factory. 
Inside the F1 paddock and pit lane, how serious was this incoming team being taken? Well, I think, you know, the association with Reynard was obviously very, very important because Reynard was a very competitive engine uh, chassis manufacturer in Brackley. So it was like moving moving that aside a little bit and moving in there with the expertise that that, uh, that Reynard had. Adrian Reynard's no fool, um, as he's shown through the years. He's built some very good cars. Malcolm Osler was the chief designer there. I'd worked with Malcolm when I was uh, at Reynard in 1989, and uh, we won the Formula 3000 championship in 1988 with a, a Reynard Formula 3000 car. So it was one of those things where that was taken seriously because if it, if it did click together, it could work very well. They also poached um, Andrew Green from, from Jordan, um, who had worked at Reynard before, and he, he left and went to work there. So at the end of the day, yes, it was taken fairly seriously. The big thing was just about making it all click together making it all work because there were some egos that needed to be satisfied there probably that might be might stand in the way of that little bit. But yeah, we you know it was it was good to get another Formula One team on on stream because you know Formula One was it wasn't the twenty six cars it used to be. It was I think twenty two on the grid at that point in time. So it was, you know, nice to see that happening. Um just needed to be all as I say, all knit together. And that's never easy whenever you're setting up a new team. Yeah, and as we found out, it certainly wasn't easy in the slightest in that first season, at least. Let's get on with the race weekend then. Hackett and Schumacher occupied the front row, with Villeneuve making good on the promise of the updated Williams to qualify third. He felt he could have pipped Schumacher to the front row, but in fairness, Schumacher abandoned his final lap once he realised it wasn't going to overcome the margin of four tenths that Hackinen had over him. But Villeneuve warned that the Williams wouldn't be any good uh, if the race was wet, and sure enough, race day. The rain came. Villeneuve made quick work of slipping down the order with a bad start, while John Lacey rocketed up to fourth in his Sauber. At the front, Hakkinen eased away from Schumacher, and it wasn't long before Coulthard passed the Ferrari as well. Given Schumacher's wet weather prowess, this was a bit of a surprise, although it emerged after the race that Ferrari had gambled on conditions improving and had a dry weather setup on both cars. Ed, you and I were in the grandstands or on the banks. I don't know what sort of ticket you had that day. Is it fair to say that before we found out about the dry setup, it was a surprise to see the McLarens with the upper hand over Schumacher in the wet? No, I was in. I was in the grandstand. You've got to. You've got to do it. Uh, do it properly if you, if you can. But yeah, this was at a time where if it was raining, you backed Schumacher because he generally won the wet races. To this day, I think he's the driver with the most wins in in rain affected F one races. Although Lewis Hamilton's been chipping away uh, at that tally, but Coulthard and Hacken and probably Coulthard in particular weren't weren't mugs in the in the wet. But when Hakkinen got away in the lead, it did feel like it was only a matter of time before Schumacher got ahead. But very briefly, Schumacher was right with him. And then suddenly he's falling back and, and Coulthard gets him. But actually, a really good move uh, at Abbey. So, yeah, the race did unfold, particularly early on, in a slightly different to, to expected way. Because, yeah, when it rained, Schumacher won. But I would say the star of the opening phase of the race was the other Schumacher, Ralph. Ralph had started on the back row after his car failed scrutineering, but by the end of the first lap, he was already 14th. He kept making progress from there and kept his nose clean when others didn't to claim Jordan's first point of the year in sixth. And Eddie Jordan said that was a huge blessing because I'd started to believe we would never get that point. So Gary, I imagine you were following uh, the yellow cars pretty closely in these opening laps while there was lots of other stuff going on for the rest of us to watch. But how impressive was this drive 
from Ralph. And had you shared Eddie's pessimism about Jordan's chances of scoring a point or were you always optimistic that um, they'd get the job done in the end? Um, no, I was always optimistic. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I've been on the technical side. I was on the cliff face of the problems. So I was involved with trying to repair it, fix it, whereas Eddie was obviously on the outside of that. that. Um, so, you know, you have to believe in what we were doing. I have to believe in what I was doing with the car and the, and the guys around me believed in my the direction I wanted to take and, and got on and achieved the objectives. You know, as far as the race was concerned, um, Ralph was put to the back of the grid because he couldn't get out of the car within the five-second rule. Um, it was done at the beginning of the year because you, you have to do it. But then as the season progressed, you know, his seat got modified a bit here and there and, you know, so on and so forth that, whenever they called him to do it again at Silverstone, he couldn't quite make it. So we had to modify the dash of the car to, to clear his knees so he could get out quicker. It was, you know, negligence, I think, on our behalf, because we should have checked it every now and again ourselves, but um, we didn't, and we suffered the consequences. So he started at the back. And to be honest, you know, keeping his cool and doing that was was probably as, um, as good a weekend as I've seen from Ralph, you know, his maturity had grown quite a lot. He had got a better car underneath him, so he was content with that situation. Um, and he, I think he knew that you know the only way to get to the checkered flag and potentially score some points was through maturity and making the right decisions. And he and he drove fantastically. It was you know relative to to Damon who spun off. Um, whenever we thought Damon would bring in some good good points for us, um, you know, end up Ralph Ralph was the one to do it. And, justifiably so I believe because I think during the beginning of the season the first half of the season Ralph fought harder with me or against me or whatever you like to call it to try to get the car better to get try to get the car faster whereas Damon had sort of not given up by any means but he hadn't he wasn't fighting you know the way I'd like to have seen him Ralph was a new boy in town still cutting his teeth so he he, he just wanted to fight for it and, and get the best out of the car at every point in time and it was good to see him score that point at Silverstone because it was a, a big, big day for us. As you say, we were just across the road. The fact we were just across the road. So all our people were there. And, you know, it's a big motivation at one point. And as I said earlier on, you know, it's only points to sixth. And um, you could have a very good season, finishing seventh every weekend. But, you know, sixth was difficult to get into because with the big teams that were there, you know, the Ferrari, McLaren. Um, it was it was tough to get into that, that uh, top six. And as you mentioned, Hill spun out early in the race on lap 14 and he dejectedly made some noises after the race about keeping one eye on the future and there has to be a good reason to continue in F1, saying money wasn't the most important thing at this stage of his career, being competitive was. Damon also came under fire from Irvine, who dropped back from 5th to 10th on the opening lap and then accused Hill of weaving all over the place when he caught him. He went on to call Damon a sad old man, a menace on the track and a bad loser. But Hill said he was entitled to do what he did in defending his position. So Gary, this was the weekend that kick-started Jordan's season and Eddie used those exact words in his book. Damon was on a two-year contract at this point, so this didn't develop into a big will-he-won't-he sort of retirement saga. But even though Jordan was happy with the result and happy to get that first point, did you feel Damon was perhaps still under a a personal cloud after having a disappointing home race? Well, yes. I mean, a, a British driver at the British Grand Prix, 
in a, a British team that's just across the road from the track, um, that's obviously a you know a big venture to uh, to try to do the best you can. And it was a bit of a silly mistake, you know. It was conditions that you would have said suited uh, a driver. I suppose you might call it wet conditions. Always suit the driver plays a much bigger part than the car. You still need the car underneath you, but the driver contribution is huge. And uh, and I think that's Damon took that all in, you know. As I said, he had a he had a two year contract. I think he first first year was due to he had the left rear leg of a, ho- a horse in Ireland. I think Eddie had given him, and and I think he got the second rear leg for the for the second year. But um, it you know you want to do the best you can, and your home race is your home race, and and to get beaten by Ralph was just a, a sort of another little nail in the coffin of you know hang on this is uh, this is tougher than I thought it was, and, and actually the car is okay at the moment. I should be bringing in points results here, and I'm not. So that's all, you know. That's all personal, and you have to live with that as a driver. Yeah, and Damon was usually pretty good in the in the wet. Now, worst reason to retire from a race isn't an award I think we've given out before on Bring Back V10s, but uh, we might have to give it to Johnny Herbert in this episode as he spun off while trying to wave Sauber teammate Jean Alesi through after an argument about team orders. Alacy was two-stopping, and after running fourth in his opening stint, he came out from his first stop behind the one-stopping Herbert. Alacy was furious about not being allowed through to crack on, and he made a point of swerving around on the straights to show he was being held up. Herbert claimed at the time his radio wasn't working, so he couldn't clearly hear the messages, and he eventually assumed the uh, the broken noises he could hear in his earpiece uh, must have been the team asking him to let Alacy by. However, in Johnny's book, he tells a different version of this story. His book suggests this took place at the German Grand Prix, but all the details match up perfectly to what happened at Silverstone. And uh, and anyway, he retired in Germany late on for gearbox failure. So this is clearly the right story. Herbert said in his book, the order to let pass John came from Peter Sauber himself. And Johnny responded, no, I will not let pass John. He's on two stops. I'm on one. I'm ahead. So sorry, I won't. Johnny then added, the argument went on for at least two laps with Jean just behind me. And in the end, I got so worked up that I pulled over to let Jean pass me. But when I did, I ended up spinning off into the gravel. Ed, quite simply, should Johnny have been a bit more of a team player here? Uh, Yes. I think the whole thing reflects pretty badly (laughs) on everyone involved, really. (laughs) Drivers should listen to team orders. And okay, there was a radio problem. We had to take that as as a face value, and that was one. Although sometimes drivers do have radio problems. That uh, well, that's the thing. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes when there's things they don't like to hear, the radio problems arise. But let's just give him that one. But yeah, going off letting your teammate past is is a problem clearly. And had he just let him past quicker and in a sensible way, then that wouldn't have happened. I think you do also have to look a little bit at the wider team because I don't really understand why this scenario hadn't been detected as possible before that because obviously as soon as you get that one stop two stop difference there's always the possibility the one stopper will find themselves in the way of the two stopper and Lacey had had a really really good first stint he was right up the up the sharp end so there was a good result potentially on the board for him so you'd have to say there was a bit of a failure of the management as well I think we also have to remember the wider context because there's a lot of rumours about Herbert losing his seat at this stage to drivers like Frentzen the Herbert Alacy partnership didn't work very well I think they managed to collide which I think was Alacy's fault in practice in Argentina like on their first lap of the weekend or something completely needless like that so 
the, the relationship there wasn't uh, wasn't great. I think Alacy after the race said next season it's either him or me. So there was clearly a wider context here. But if you are the driver being instructed to let your teammate pass, and then you go off while doing it, having delayed a little bit. Ultimately, that does come around on you. So yeah, just a horrible situation for the whole team. Bad from Herbert. Alacy probably getting a bit too overexcited and he was someone who had his moments when he didn't listen to team instructions uh, as well so yeah just probably a sign of of where that relationship was going and of course Herbert did move to Stewart in the end probably because he he couldn't resist the temptation to drive a, a car involving Gary Anderson yeah we'll come to that in a moment Johnny was pushed back onto the circuit after spinning off uh, by the marshals and he claimed at the time that because of that he drove back to the pits to retire because he knew he would be excluded However, in his book, he wrote that he could have continued, but he chose not to because he was raging and he wanted to get out of the car to cool off. Johnny said, you can probably count the number of times I've lost my temper over the years on the fingers of one hand. But if I'd gone to see Peter Sauber straight after getting out of the car, I might have attacked him. We did talk later, but Peter failed to convince me that what he was doing was for the good of the team. Had Jean been fighting for the championship at the time, fine, I'd have understood. But we were both in a similar position. As Ed mentioned, Alacy uh, was furious as well, and he did say that if Herbert didn't leave the team for 99, he would. And there were also rumours at the time that Prost were trying to sign Alacy, which probably helped his case. So Gary, as Ed mentioned, Johnny ended up with you at Stewart in 1999. But if this scenario between Johnny and Alacy had played out inside one of your teams, how would you have handled it? It's always difficult whenever you're you're running two drivers on different strategies because you know from a driver point of view, I think there's 22 cars on the grid. Then um, the driver's got 21 people he wants to beat. Um, from a team point of view, there's 11 teams, so you've you basically want to do the best job you can for your team. Uh, so it depends on how it's unfolding. Uh, you need to look at it in a bit more detail um, and see really whether the the opportunity for Lacey to catch someone else was there during that period. Um, if that was true, then fine. You know, you need to you need to ride the storm and, and let that happen. And we see it quite often now when when team orders are more more um, vocal. Uh, that one driver will let another driver through, and then they'll they'll undo that later in the race um, if it doesn't work out for them. Um, so I think you have to take that all into account. And I think Johnny was a little bit selfish in not allowing John John Lacey through. Um, but as I say, it's, it's, it's more of a bigger picture of seeing it at that point in time and seeing whether or not there's an opportunity for the team to do better if you allow, if you do make that happen. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's it'll change around and uh, there'll be another race somewhere where the opposite might happen. So you've got to take that into account. It's never all one-sided. So I think Johnny was a little bit selfish in that front and I would have tried to make the same thing happen as Peter Sarber had with a view to unfolding it again later on in the race. I think uh, Johnny did fall off like halfway through the race. I think it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that far into the race. There was still a long way to go. So there was a lot of potential still to happen there. And if you were one stop and normally it would just get worse for you um, because obviously, you know, you are one stop and it's going to be a bit more of a, dram- a drama. So um, I would have thought the fastest car there at that point in time, halfway through the race would have been the guy who was two stopping because he would have had the better tyres on him. So I'd have probably made the same decision as Peter Sauber. Yeah, I think it's probably quite badly handled by everyone. As, as Gary mentioned, when points were only going down to sixth, a team like Sauber needed to do everything it could. And ultimately their goal in a race like this is 
get two cars to the checkered flag in the shortest race time possible. And it's just unfortunate if they end up in each other's way. But as Ed said, they probably should have seen that one coming beforehand. Back at the front, Coulthard was keeping pace with Hakkinen, but at their first stops, Coulthard was put onto another set of intermediate tyres and Hakkinen was given full wets when he came in. Then the rain got heavier and heavier and Coulthard was fighting a losing battle. And on lap 38, he spun into the gravel at Abbey when trying to lap Fissy Keller's Benetton. DC was livid about this and stormed back to the pits to demand answers from the team. He tried to keep his calm in public, explaining that he wanted to understand why McLaren made those choices. He said, I found out Mika was on the full wet and it kept raining. I was immediately a bit frustrated in the car because I'm seeing more water go down on the track and I know he's on the right tyre and I'm on the wrong tyre. The information from my side of the pit wall was that we felt it was going to dry up, but I need to understand what information they had on the other side to make them confident to go on the wet tyre. Ron Dennis claimed that McLaren's information changed between the two drivers' stops, which were only two laps apart, while Mercedes boss Norbert Howe said Coulthard was going to be called in on the lap that he spun to take full wets, and we should add that both Ferraris were on intermediates at this stage of the race as well. Ed, at the time, Coulthard called this the lowest moment of his career as he felt it ended his championship hopes. Was he right to question McLaren or is two laps a long time in changeable conditions? Yeah, obviously at this point he hadn't experienced Austria 99 where he punted Hakkinen uh, into a spin and then lost to Schumacher. <laughs> that, that was probably a lower moment. But yeah, I think we have to see this whole thing within the context of what something we've talked about before with Coulthard, that feeling that Hakkinen was favoured within the team and there was almost this paranoia at times and we'd have that puzzling situation with the the Australia win earlier in the season when Hakkinen had the phantom pit stop and they swapped it back round uh, again but if you look at the situation in that race taking intermediates at that stage was not out of kilter with what others were doing so what Ron Dennis said after the race about the weather changing is a fair point I don't know, maybe they could have maybe there was something in the weather forecast that could have revealed it. But the fact that they were kind of going with the herd at that point suggests it was probably right. If you look at the footage, it is visibly wetter two laps later. Okay, that's only, I don't know, three, three and a half minutes difference when Hackenden comes in. But yeah, it does seem to have, have changed at that point. You completely get why he's frustrated and by definition, it, it, yeah, it was the wrong call. But yeah, I think it's 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 difficult to really condemn McLaren for that one. The only downside is there wasn't a Jordan in the pits any time around that point, so we can't we can't uh, we can't take Gary to task. But all of their pit stops were nowhere near that window, unfortunately. Well, I think uh, Jordan got a car from the back of the grid to sixth, so we won't be questioning their uh, strategy at all. Coulthard's retirement left Hakkinen with a massive lead as track conditions continued to worsen. And Mika then had the massive fright of spinning in the fast bridge corner right-hander. He gathered it all up, turned it into a 360-degree spin and kept going, only losing four seconds to Schumacher on that lap, so his lead was still over half a minute. Not long after that scary moment, with several other cars having spun off uh, out of the race and they were, they were stuck at the side of the track, the safety car was finally deployed. This was bad news for Hakkinen as he damaged his front wing in that off at bridge and now he lost his massive lead that he was trying to nurse to the end. Gary, Alain Prost, who was a team owner at the time, said the conditions had been too dangerous for several laps before the safety car was deployed. Did you agree with that on the Jordan pit wall at the time or was Alain just saying that because both of his drivers spun out just before the safety car? Um, well, I didn't really agree because <clears throat> obviously, you know, uh, all the drivers are running on the same uh, conditions. And as you were saying there, 
Some cars were on intermediate tyres, some cars were on wet tyres. Um, it, it was a wet tyre race, to be honest. You know, you have to be careful with them if it, if it does dry up a little bit because you can eat them up very, very quickly. But, you know, we were in a, in a race. We were doing very well. We were moving up through the front. And as all those guys fell off, we were taking advantage. So the last thing you want is is something to um, upset the race and, you know, the race be stopped or something. The safety car is okay because obviously it lets you close up a bit more. So for us coming from behind, all that stuff was positive. And, uh, you know, Ralph, if, if Ralph was nothing, he was brave. So those conditions and being brave are always obviously something that go together quite well. So I I don't agree that it was dangerous. I think it was needed respect. And as we've seen, a few drivers made mistakes, a few drivers didn't. And you end up with a Grand Prix that there's a there's a finish. You know, people people win it and people people finish tenth or whatever. So that's that's what racing's about, isn't it? You just get the best result out of a given day that you can. Well, funnily enough, this Grand Prix sort of had a finish, but we'll come to that shortly. Hakkinen said he knew he'd be in trouble with his damaged wing uh, when the race restarted. And after holding Schumacher off for one lap, Mika then went off at Beckett's, handing Michael the lead. Ed, Hakkinen said his car just didn't turn because of the front downforce he was missing. Once he'd lost that huge gap that he'd built up when the safety car came out, with that damaged front wing, was Mika always doomed at the front of the race? Not sure about doomed, but he was clearly up against it. You know, for good reason, he was lacking uh, lacking front load. I can remember him remember seeing him going uh, going off when he understeered at, at, at Beckett's. So it was always going to be difficult, and that was always going to be a key point for him trying to carry the speed through that sequence and off it so he wasn't vulnerable on the on the hangar straight so yeah he was in a difficult position but then again he wouldn't have been had he not had the had he not had the earlier spin admittedly in conditions where people were going off left right and center so yeah I think he was always going to be on the on the back foot and there comes a point where when you are lacking a little bit of front load and the conditions are weird where you are kind of gambling on on how much speed you can carry through things so yeah in a, in a very in a very difficult position uh, as soon as he picked up that damage as drivers always are even even in those days with the less complex front wings if you've got damage you've just got less front end Schumacher then cruised away at the front while Irvine hassled Hakkinen but uh, Eddie spooked himself when he aquaplaned behind the McLaren so he decided to back off and bring home a safe podium finish the real drama at Ferrari came in the closing laps when an official arrived on the Ferrari pit wall with a piece of paper saying Schumacher had been penalised for overtaking under yellow flags. Schumacher had indeed committed the offence, passing Alex Wurtz's Benetton on lap 43 just before the safety car came out, but Ferrari weren't told of the decision until lap 57, which was 31 minutes after the offence took place. Back then, F1 had a rule that the team needed to be informed within 25 minutes of the offence, so the penalty was actually void but we'll come back to that in a minute. I have to say, Ferrari handled this very calmly on the pit wall. There is footage of it, I think, in the F1 season review from the F1 digital channel that we had back then. While future team principal and current F1 supremo Stefano Domenicali signed the penalty notice, Jean Tot asked the messenger with the clipboard if it was a stop-go penalty or a time penalty. The marshal convincingly said he didn't know. But Domenicali and Ross Braun both spotted that it said time penalty on the paperwork. Despite the team being aware it was a time penalty, they took the curious decision to bring Schumacher in for a stop go. However, because they were notified as late as lap 57, that meant Schumacher had three laps to serve any penalty. So he came in at the end of the final lap. 
Bizarrely, this meant he crossed the finish line before he actually reached the Ferrari pit box in the pit lane to serve the penalty. To do more justice to just how bizarre this finish was, let's hear how the great Murray Walker commentated on it alongside Martin Brundle at the time. He's giving it absolutely everything, isn't he, on this lap? Yeah, and I, I think, think he's, he's trying, trying to pull out. A, yeah. an, he's running wide there looking pro. I think he's trying to pull out something, trying to get it to 30 seconds, but uh, I really don't know how this one's going to end up, if they're going to have to fight this out with the stewards. He won't, we won't know that. It, it, he won't get it up to 30 seconds. He might. He's going to get it up to about 25. It was 23 when this race started. He's so, in the pit lane. Schumacher, Schumacher in the pit lane. In. So... Well, this, but, but that means he'll win the race because he crosses the start-finish line to be... Uh, he crosses the start-finish line now, I believe, well, to, yes, it's lap 60, to take his penalty. But the race is over, surely. Well, this could be an incredible bit of political acumen. Meantime, I'm looking to see Mika Hakkinen go through, and I'm desperately... There is Mika Hakkinen and Michael Schumacher. And I'm pretty sure that Michael Schumacher has won the British Grand Prix. He's made his stop-start. He's crossed the finish line before Mika Hakkinen. But that is very, very, very unofficial. We've got to wait for the official news. Meantime, I'm watching the computer that gives us this information. It says, lap 60, Michael Schumacher in pit. Mika Hakkinen's crossed the line. I frankly do not know the answer at the moment. Ferrari are going mad in their garage, I can tell you that. I have never, ever, in the years I've been watching Grand Prix racing, seen a finish like that. It is absolutely unprecedented. That wasn't the end of the confusion as Schumacher rejoined the track and carried on for another lap at racing speeds which Ferrari later said was a decision to play safe in case Schumacher was obliged to pass the chequered flag on the track. So, Ed, like me, you were trackside. What did you make of all this? Well, it's completely ridiculous, wasn't it? You know, it's, it's self-evident <laughs> to anyone. You can't take a penalty after crossing the line. You might as well take it a week later. It doesn't make any possible logical sense. And then, yeah, Schumacher then doing another lap was ridiculous as well because that, that was a slowdown lap and also great safety concerns. It did seem Ferrari was attempting to pull a fast one, and in some ways they sort of were, but obviously for, for various reasons, some of which you've uh, already alluded to, there were wider problems about this penalty in terms of the clarity, legitimacy, etc. So just a very, very odd situation. Ferrari might just have been better off just ignoring it. And you know, if you're told it's a time penalty, that is a time penalty, not a stop-go penalty. So, yeah, it... it it complicated matters to do this. And actually, had Ferrari just gone to the end of the race and then argued it out or had the penalty or not, it would have been easier to, on the surface, have sympathy with their situation, whereas the actual finish was bizarre and extremely unsatisfactory. That's a good point. Ferrari had signed paperwork that said 10-second time penalty, so it didn't really make any sense to bring him in for a stop-go. Schumacher returned to Park Ferme still unsure he'd won, and he actually did... He, he, so he ended up doing two laps after the finish of the race. And you could see his his joy and relief in Park Ferme when his mechanics told him he was the winner. On the way up to the podium, there's footage of him having the situation laid out to him by Jean Tot. And Schumacher clearly looks concerned and a bit confused, as well as admitting he was taking it easy before the safety car came out because he couldn't live with Hakkinen's pace. Schumacher said of the yellow flag incident with Verts, I don't even remember I passed him because you pass someone, you don't, but you don't even see it because of the spray. That is the reason why you don't see flags. If you imagine I'm following someone that close, then you're lucky to see the road. 
we have to clarify now what was the story and what we should have done. Gary, you were in the heart of this race with Jordan still. Ralph brought it home in sixth and was one of the first people to congratulate Michael in Parc Ferme. How aware were you of what was going on and what did you make of how Ferrari handled it? Um, well, we thought quite badly because at the end of the day, we, we had um, no information on it. We just we just basically saw everything unfold. Um, and uh, Michael coming into the pits on the on the last lap of the race. And so, you, you know, you had no idea what was happening, but, you know, he won the race by, what, 22 seconds, I think it was, 22 and a half seconds. So, you know, time penalty would have been, as I say, 10 seconds or something like that. So either way, it didn't matter. He didn't have to do that sort of stuff. And I think whenever you see the way it all unfolded by sending him out for another lap, it was, Ferrari didn't know what was going to happen either. I think it was just covering all your bases if possible, making him drive through the pits, stop, go, um, do that extra lap. <clears throat> so it didn't matter what penalty they threw at them, there was a pretty good chance that Ferrari could have an argument that would allow them to have won the race. So um, uh, it's very difficult. I've been, you know, in meetings or protests or whatever you like to call it um, with Ferrari and um, you're never going to win, I suppose. So, you know, they definitely know what's, they definitely know how to fight a battle. And obviously covering your bases with everything, that was that was what they ended up doing. So it's uh I don't think it was right, but that that was the, the, the decision on that day. McLaren appealed the result and that appeal was rejected. The reason it was rejected was that the penalty was void for multiple reasons. So firstly, there was Ferrari being informed of the penalty outside of the 25-minute window, which the stewards put down to the distraction of the safety car coming out straight after Schumacher committed the offence. The penalty was also not communicated properly uh, as it never appeared on the timing screen. So as Gary just said there, nobody else had any information. And if you watch the finish of this race back with the, uh, the UK commentary, you can hear Murray Walker and Martin Brundle saying they can see no sign of the penalty anywhere official. The final error made by the stewards was that they applied the wrong penalty. The 10-second time penalty they handed Schumacher was only applicable for offences that took place in the final 12 laps of the race, but Schumacher passed Wurtz with 17 laps to go. Because of that, Schumacher should have been given a 10-second stop-go, which would have been roughly a 25-second time loss. And how far behind did Hakkinen finish in second, as Gary just mentioned there? 22 seconds. This formed part of McLaren's reasoning for taking the matter to the FIA International Court of Appeal. Ron Dennis said, We weren't advised there was a penalty imposed. For that reason, we were pacing Micker because he'd sustained some front wing damage. So we could have pushed, which is a normal thing. If there's a penalty, we are informed. The second thing is it was taken after the finish line. And again, that seems to be wrong. So Ed, with that background information... What do you make of how the stewards handled all of this in the heat of the moment? Because it seems like they made quite a lot of mistakes in short order. Yeah, pretty bad, isn't it? Everything that could have gone wrong did go <laughs> wrong. There wasn't one mistake. It was multiple. The penalty vague, wasn't communicated properly, not in a timely fashion, not communicated to the millions watching on television or those commentating. It wasn't the right penalty. I mean, that's the definition of amateur. The stewards were and indeed are amateur in status so it was a failure of the stewards to get it right to get anything right really that created the conditions for this controversy mclaren's uh, appeal at the court or court of appeal did fail as well with max mosley saying this was because the stewards would not have punished schumacher if they'd known how difficult it was to see the yellow flag and this was after the fa received footage showing what had happened 
This footage is in the 1998 official F1 season review if you're interested and you want to get a real look at uh, whether Michael could see that yellow flag or not. But the stewards responsible for the fiasco were summoned to a World Motorsport Council hearing of their own. Then on the day of the hearing, they resigned from their positions. Mosley said they would be welcome to reapply for their licenses in the future, adding that they were extremely experienced and competent officials who were working under extreme pressure in dangerous weather conditions at Silverstone. The FIA promised to learn from this situation and come up with ways to reduce the workload of the stewards during a Grand Prix. One of the changes it eventually made was to get rid of that 25-minute time limit for punishing an offence. So, Gary, as we start to wrap it up here, was it right that McLaren's appeal was rejected for the reasons Mosley gave? Is it fair that Schumacher shouldn't be penalised if he can't see the flags or should there be a hard line on that sort of thing? Um, I think there should be a very hard line. I mean, by definition, <clears throat> you're going to have more incidents and accidents whenever there is bad conditions. And when there is bad conditions, you're going to have more difficulty seeing the flags. So, you know, in reality, the flags are a waste of time if it comes to the fact of, of accepting that you couldn't see them in bad conditions. Um, so I think that's completely wrong. Um, I think it, it shouldn't have been that way at all. Uh, if you if you have an indiscretion because of a yellow flag, it could be for any reason. You know, there could be marshals on the track or whatever. So you you should have to slow down. But I think what all this shows that it's what it's um, twenty three years ago, twenty four years ago, and I suppose you could say with what we've seen this season with uh, decisions, um, nothing's really changed, has it? And all of this should have changed. All of this shouldn't be able to happen right now. I mean, we go back a year, I think it was, to Hamilton couldn't see the yellow flashing light at the Mons of pit entrance. Where are we going with all this? This this should highlight the fact that there is a lot of racing drivers out there in cars, big money being spent, and then there's decisions being made. And those those people making those decisions need to be more up to date than than they are. So yeah, I guess I guess in the modern era. Um, we still have stewards controversies all the time. They're just a bit more complicated and a bit more high tech. But Ed, we've we've hauled the stewards over the coals for all the mistakes they made. But did they deserve to then be dragged into the fallout like this with being summoned to the World Motorsport Council? Obviously, that hearing didn't take place because they resigned on the morning of. But was was that a bit much to to, to drag them into it in the way that the FAA almost did? Yeah, maybe there was an element of the theatrics about that, but the simple fact is the stewards were dragged into it because the stewards were at fault with their catalogue of errors. So there was no way that you could protect the stewards or, or divert from what they were doing. So in that regard, yeah, stewards were at fault, deserve everything that's coming to them. But there is a caveat we have to add to this, which is you've got to assume they weren't correctly educated in the procedures and informed about how things work. There weren't fail-safes in place. You can say what you like about the FI stewards today and there's a few areas where you can raise some questions but they are well educated and well prepared they know what they're there to do they know how all the processes are working there's no excuse for not understanding that I think the stewards at the British Grand Prix in 98 would have had more of an excuse for that and there were wider failings and in fact the FI did address this because they talked about finding ways to create a slightly more sensible robust procedure with the race director noting times of incidents and giving them written documentation etc so a lot of things were tightened up there the the stewards yeah like I say they're still amateur today but it was much more amateurish back in that stage so yeah the stewards were at fault but these things don't happen in a vacuum so 
the FIA probably also were quite happy to make them the sacrificial lambs rather than drawing any attention to any wider problems that uh, that may have been in place. But for, for such a catalogue of errors to happen, it's not only a question of that. And you've even got to ask, well, who appointed the stewards? Even if you say everything was perfect and the stewards just got it wrong, then, well, who appointed them? Who felt they were qualified to do it? They were qualified to do it. The wider structure just was not at the level required of, of Formula One, and it didn't serve the, the broadcast. It didn't serve sporting integrity. It didn't serve motor racing in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, the stewards ultimately, the buck does have to stop with them. We'll leave it there for Silverstone 1998, and hopefully, we've made some sense of what went on at the finish. And thank you to Ed and Gary for helping us get Series 5 kicked off. And we'll certainly revisit 1998 again in the future remember to get your questions in for our series finale by using the hashtag bringbackv10s on twitter emailing bringbackv10s at the-race.com or by leaving us a five-star podcast review if you think we've earned one and check out the race.com forward slash members club if you'd like to get early access to ad free episodes and bonus con- bonus content between the series we're skipping forward a few years for our next episode where we'll be heading to 2004 and looking into the story of the unforgettable Williams FW26 in its original form, more commonly known as the Walrus. 